Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Athene Donald. Athene Donald is Professor Emerita in Experimental Physics and Master of Churchill College uh, at the University of Cambridge. She specializes in soft matter physics and physics at the interface with biology. She was the University of Cambridge first gender equality champion and has been involved in numerous initiatives concerning women in science. She was elected fellow of Royal Society in 1991. Uh, Athene, welcome to New Books Network. Hello. Uh, It's great to be able to talk to you about uh, gender equity in science. Um, So can you first please briefly introduce yourself and tell us how this book came about? Sure. So I'm a physicist and women in physics are still something of a rarity. When I was an undergraduate, we were about 10% in my undergraduate class in Cambridge. Numbers in Cambridge have increased maybe to 20, 25%, but nothing like 50-50 in physics. And some subjects like computing and engineering are probably even less balanced. So over the years, this has concerned me. Um, I suppose personally, I found that as many women do, indeed in many sectors, that there is subtle bias going on. One's view is not treated quite so seriously. If you talk at a committee meeting, you don't necessarily get heard in any real sense. And over time, I realized that you know, whatever my own failings may have been, some of these really were systemic problems. And at that point, I began to get quite angry, I suppose, to feel that it's a known problem, but nothing much changes. And I became quite vocal within my own university, which was why I became the um, gender equality champion. And that gave me a platform to try and change practice a bit within the university. But I mean, it's it's a complex problem. Uh, And the book, I suppose, is a distillation of what I've been thinking about for a long time. 
Uh, I have a personal blog where I've written a lot about these issues, and I know it resonates particularly with young researchers. But I'm also very conscious, certainly in my country, that schooling actually introduces the idea of gender stereotypes incredibly early on, that uh, boys and girls are kind of pushed in different directions by the toys they're given, the, the sort of messages they receive about how adventurous they should be and what are appropriate careers. So the first part of my book covers quite a lot about the early years and what what our system fails to do, if you like, in treating everyone equitably. And then the second part is more concerned with what happens when you become a practicing scientist and what experiences for women are like there. Let, let's talk about some of the obstacles women generally face, especially in, in the scientific workforce or in, in uh, science or STEM disciplines. H- how do they experience the field of science differently as opposed to men in ways that are discriminatory against them? And you did say that some of these issues are systematic. I think many of them are. Um, I mean, there are the obvious ones about harassment and bullying. One of the things in certain areas, not so much in in my subject of physics, but if you are doing uh, science that requires field trips, for instance, there are some really appalling stories about behavior on field trips. If you're stuck out on a glacier, you know, with with the three other people and they're all men, you're very vulnerable and, and it's quite hard you, you can't progress if you don't do the field work. So, so these are really major issues. I have no personal experience of that. But I think there are the, the systematic problems are really just beginning to be uncovered. There's long, it's long been known that if you submit CVs under male and female names, the male tends to get favored. And if you if you use different kind of um if you use names that, that represent different kinds of ethnicities, there's also a very clear pecking order with the white male always coming out on top. So there are those kinds of things that have been known for a while. But I think perhaps more surprising are things like um, the way collaborations happen, the way citations happen, the way um, certainly looking at data from the UK, grants typically are smaller for women than for men. There are kinds of things where you think we're talking about objective metrics and and they actually turn out to be quite biased because of who we are. And I think it's important to say that it's not just men who are biased. This isn't a case of men trying to do down women. It turns out women are just as biased. And I think that's important to, to recognize because it isn't just... You know, men against women, as it were. We all carry biases within ourselves, and I, it's important to recognize that. Uh, there was a very interesting thing you mentioned about citation and grants. Just before I recorded the interview, we were talking, and I mentioned there was another book about equity in science, which actually does some, um, it's based on the statistical research, and uh, they have these all these tables and graphs uh, showing how women usually almost always get a smaller portion of funding and grants. And in citation, yeah. I read earlier that if, uh, especially before peer re- blind, I think it's called blind peer review, yes. women papers were usually rejected, mostly rejected. Uh, it, it, it is yeah. a strange thing because you think these should be absolutely mm. objective. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's amazing how a, just a name could uh, bias you towards the content. 
scientific objective content. And you've been uh, in the field of science in some of the best universities in the world. So these issues still exist in, um, you, you personally experienced some of the issues you're, you're writing about, am I right? Yes, I, I, indeed. I mean, it, it is particularly, the kinds of things I felt being particularly that people didn't know what to make of me as a mid-career woman. I think people often think it's early career that's really difficult, and in many ways it is, and that's certainly when you are more likely to get harassed and things like that. But for me, and I know for other women, it's the mid-career where suddenly you you become a sort of threat to men in a way you weren't. They, they were able to patronise you when you were younger. And then you're, you're, you know, it's when I was an FRS, so I was a fellow of the Royal Society at the National Academy, and, and still, I was sort of treated as an outlier in some ways. And that's when I got angry because I, I didn't really understand why this happened. I didn't feel I was particularly offensive to people or anything. And yet somehow you could just tell that, that I was not being treated as one of the boys in terms of decision making within my department, for instance. Um, just on that, I have a question about diversity and how it benefits science. It's great to see scientists like you and also your colleagues, Professor Jim Al-Khalili and the late Tom McLeish, asking for more diversity. And it's great when it comes from scientists in the field, because there's usually this misunderstanding that science is objective, of course, and they, 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 there's this misconception that diversity detracts from objectivity of science. So I guess it still keeps some of those barriers in place. What's your response to that uh, idea that diversity might detract from the objectivity of science? How can diversity benefit science? Well, there is certainly evidence showing that if you have a diverse team, you do better science. Mm. But also that, that, I mean, there was a study two or three years ago in PNAS, which looked at, um, I think they were probably graduate students, and that people who weren't sort of majority white males <clears throat> actually were more innovative in the work they did, but their work got less recognition. And if you have teams, I think people understand in the business context, a diverse board leads to a better bottom line. And it's rather the same. If you have lots of different perspectives, people will solve problems more effectively than if you're all sort of going in the same straight line. And the idea that science is objective, um, the, the the science itself may be objective, but the the uh, decisions, the way science is done, is not. As I've just been explaining, that that's where the the bias of subjectivity comes in, and there is a real danger that if you are, if you've got bias, you are promoting people who are not the best because you are overlooking someone who doesn't fit what you think a, a first-class scientist should look like. So I think this idea of objectivity, it, it needs to be questioned quite hard. And, and I think you made a very, very important distinction that I hadn't thought about. Yeah, the science, maybe the object of scientific inquiry is, is objective, but the method, the experimentation, it's all about trial and error. That's where diversity can really help to get to that objective. Um, that's with, right. With a capital T. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it's not the data may be objective, but what data you, you try to get mm. is something that is open to choice. Mm. And uh, this is not a new issue. We have made a lot of progress, of course, but there are still challenges ahead. Historically, women of uh, women in the field of science they were very much involved. They were like they were because science was done in the back. I guess in the 
something like a kitchen in the old days when men were the scientists and women were there helping men. They were involved in the experimentations, but they rarely got acknowledged uh, for their contribution. So what were some of the barriers, historically speaking, that have kept them behind and have uh, led us to forget some of them. You mentioned some, you have some cases, you mentioned some in your book, uh, Mary Somerville or Caroline Herschel. I'll leave it up to you to ch- talk about uh, some some examples from the past. Sure. Well, I think um, we have to recognize, and, and I'm going to talk from a very English point of view, because that's what I know. <clears throat> we have to recognize that many women weren't even educated in any serious way at all, that they perhaps if they were nice middle class, excuse me, uh, women, they would embroider, they would uh, play the harpsichord, whatever, but they they may barely have been reading. So it was very hard for them to start. So if we take Caroline Herschel, who is an interesting example, her brother, her brother, was actually a musician who came from Germany to England as a musician. And, you know, his music is out there, can be played. But um, he, he he was fascinated by astronomy. And uh, Caroline, as his sister, helped him. She very much, uh, as he started to build telescopes, she um, polished the mirrors, for instance. And as time went on, he became a, a you know, very serious and well-recognised astronomer. And she continued to do some of the grunt work, if you like. But she got more and more interested, more and more involved. And I suspect, particularly when he no longer needed her because he got married, so he didn't need a helpmate in the same way, and she was sort of displaced. She became um, really very active in her own right and and became recognised so that she she discovered um, comets, for instance, and she wrote to the president of the Royal Society and she was able to do that, but she tended to preface herself as I am the brother, uh, sorry, I am the sister of, and, you know, downplayed her own role. But she was recognised and she was well known in her time, but she then got forgotten to a large extent. The name Herschel was just associated with her brother and then her nephew, in fact. So these people have been forgotten. And I find it very interesting, the comparison with um, musicians and composers, because certainly when I was growing up, there were hardly any women composers spoken about. There was there was Fanny Mendelssohn, who was the sister of Felix Mendelssohn, and there was um, Clara Schumann, who was the wife of Robert Schumann. And that was always how they were introduced. And now... If you listen to to concerts and things, there are lots and lots of women from right through the centuries who are coming to the the fore. I don't think that will ever be the case in science because I just don't think there were that many women able to practice science at all. But we should at least give credit to those who there were. Uh, There were many great examples you brought up. Another question I had is, and that's something you talk about in the book, this image of a scientist. I guess there have been a lot of experiments, even uh, on YouTube, there are a lot of videos that show how children from very early ages are bombarded with these images that a scientist is a man, is this lone genius dressed in a white, you know, putting on a white dress in a laboratory. What is this obsession? Where does it come from? And how is it uh, propagated around us? I think many people hardly know any scientist by name at all, but the images one has are either sort of cartoon characters from the film world 
um, where, where the white lab coat, the holding the test tube, the explosions, all that comes from, or Einstein with his sticking up hair, and you know, that they are portrayed like that. So that is what a child will internalize. Um, if you take something like uh, high energy physics, the work at CERN is done by teams of hundreds, if not thousands, to discover the Higgs boson. But it's so much easier not to imagine these massive teams, but to think about Peter Higgs and, you know, he predicted the Higgs boson. So, you know, there's always this tendency to simplify things to a single person. And it really isn't how science is done now in almost all areas. Maths is perhaps unusual in that respect, but in most um, certainly in most experimental sciences, you're talking about teams, even if it's only a team of three or five rather than 5,000. Um, and I think if if young children realise that, and particularly girls who, again, because of stereotyping, because of the way we're brought up, are collaborative by nature and all the rest of it, and they, they probably like team working because that's what they think it should be about. But instead, they get this idea, you have to be a lone genius. And that's a very negative message, I think, for many people. But it's just simpler to, to do it that way. Um, and historically, of course, that was, you know, think Newton, think Einstein. But it's just not the case anymore. Uh, and, and earlier, we talked about the importance of diversity in science. And you mentioned why it's important. But, but what are some, how can we make science more diverse perhaps maybe you could also talk about some of the initiatives you had or some of the things you you yourself did in university um so how can we bring this about again if i think within the english system because it's what i know but i recognize it's kind of weird in the sense that children are made to make decisions about their subject choices really very early. And I think that is particularly detrimental. If I compare the English system with the American system, you don't have to say, I want to be a physicist at 14. You, you can wait to major till you, know, you go to university. So I think we have a particular problem in this country, um, which is associated with our education system. And um, I think it's quite widely recognized, but changing it would be pretty drastic and radical. Um, and as a, a sort of sideline, I would say, actually, it makes it much harder for someone who wants to be a scientist to keep up with languages, to practice their writing or anything like that. So it, it's bad in both directions. But I actually think the problems start much earlier in, in this stereotyping, in this idea that a scientist is a lone male. So if you're a seven-year-old and you, you think that's what it is, you may turn against it because you don't want to operate like that. Um, I think there is evidence that the way teachers interact in the classroom, um, they interact differently with boys and girls. Uh, uh, one of the stories, I don't know how true this is, but the boys tend to be more disruptive. This is probably in teenage years. So the teacher pays them more attention. So the girls think they're not interesting and, and that they sort of switch off. They're, they're all kinds of subtle things. One of the things I would like to see that I think could be done is for um, policymakers to, to try a bit harder. We have a, a national curriculum, um, so things that have to be taught in the state schools. And as I understand it, there is precisely one woman named in the national curriculum, and, and that's Mary Anning, who was a, a, an early fossil collector. So we don't even have Marie Curie or something. Um, so we could make sure that our children are exposed to the idea of women as scientists, 
Um, and um, we could check, it, it, schools are inspected, we could check what is happening in, in, the, in the choices that boys and girls are making, for instance, to see if the school ethos is actually reinforcing societal stereotypes or trying to counter them. So I think there's a lot that could be done in early years. As I said at the beginning, I think there are distinctions between what happens at school and in early years that gets girls to want to do science and then what happens thereafter when they they study it, which is a different set of problems. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, now uh, you actually answered my next question as well, which was about policy interventions to whether they are helpful or not. Because this morning I was creating another podcast. We were talking about the importance of science and I was talking to a philosopher of science. And then I asked about this recent push from policymakers to make more people study science at the cost of defunding humanities, if that's a helpful, uh, let's say, push or not. But of course, you're talking about a totally different thing, which is encouraging more women and and, and overcoming these maybe cultural issues that are at school. So, But maybe you could talk about this culture of schools that you touched upon. Um, you mentioned some of them. What are some of the ways we can bring about and change in overcoming gender bias at an early age, maybe in the schools? I, well, I think it, it's just making sure that you talk in an inclusive way. I mean, one of the things that I was really shocked by when my children were growing up is I went to a parents' evening when my son was about 11 or 12, and the English teacher said, well, boys can't write. And that is just as shocking, um, and it's ridiculous, Um but if if you have that attitude, girls can't do maths. I mean, a friend of mine was told by her school that your daughter at age 10 does maths like a boy. I don't know what that means. So really? you have to help teachers understand that their own internal biases are playing out in the way they interact with children in the classroom and try and combat that. And I don't think I don't think issues of gender necessarily get sort of raised when teachers are trained or when teachers are you know observed as it were and and it can be quite shocking that those two specific examples okay they're anecdotes they're not data but but i think it's just ubiquitous that the teachers carry their own biases unconsciously and play them out in the classroom uh there are two myths that i'd like you to talk about and sort of debunk one is that Men are more creative in science. The other one is that in general, they say that science is about facts and objectivity and creativity doesn't really play much role in science. So if you're after music or uh, literature, go and study humanities. That's for girls, maybe. But boys, real men do science. Anyway, what is this? Can you, can you kind of talk about these two misconceptions? Well, I think the idea of creativity is a very strange one in the sense you're right people think the arts are creative and that you cannot be creative in science 
And I find that really bizarre because if you are trying to solve a problem, you're going to have to constantly rethink what you know and how you're going to tackle the problem. You have to be creative in how you um, design your experiment, how you build your apparatus, whatever. It's a different kind of creativity, but it is equally open-ended and um, offers opportunities to, to think in completely new ways. So I, I find the idea that science isn't creative rather depressing. It goes back to William Blake, as far as I can see. He seemed to think that, you know, <laughs> um, I can't remember the, the relevant quote off the top of my head, but um, art is the tree of life, science is, yeah, I can't remember, but it, but it's something incredibly damning about science. You probably know what yeah, it I is. Yeah, a poet sees, it's about poet seeing a tree and a scientist uh, well, I think that's vague, a different yeah. one, but, but you know what I mean. Yeah, that there yeah, is yeah. a sort of um, belief. And then if you think about men are more creative, well, first of all, there's the myth that scientists are creative, so why is that relevant? But I, I don't know what the evidence for that is, that there, there is some limited evidence that men are more willing to take risks in certain spheres. But if you look at risk-taking, it's a very complicated thing, and and which situations you're prepared to take risks varies. Men more creative? Well, if they are more creative, it's because they've been encouraged to take risks. And I, you know, again, I think this goes back to early years where the kind of books I was brought up on when I was learning to read, it was always the boy who climbed the tree and the girl who sat at the bottom. And, you know, if the girl had tried to climb the tree, that would have been quite shocking sort of thing. And I think girls are encouraged not to take risks. And I think that is part of the problem that they feel they have to follow in sort of well-established um, directions. Um, and that's never going to be particularly fruitful in science. You need to think outside the box. Uh, there was another issue that I wasn't aware of, and I came across that when reading your book, and that is that women tend to leave the science profession earlier than men. W what are some of the underlying reasons and how could it be addressed? I think there are many, many reasons. Um, the the answer that is usually given is, well, they want to have families. And I find that a very unsatisfactory answer. Um, it, I mean, obviously, women do want to have families, but so do men, and they're not pregnant for that long. So I don't feel that's very convincing. However, I think it is true that if you are in a minority in a research group, say, and you, you don't feel you fit in, you're being excluded from going down to have a drink, you know, whatever it may be, you may use the fact that you want a family as an excuse to justify dropping out. So I think more women say that's why they leave than is really the case. Um, I think a lot of women leave because they just don't like the atmosphere they're finding and they feel why should they continue. Now, that's all about research careers. And often the women, I mean, by no means invariant, but they go off to do something that's sort of related to science. Maybe they go into teaching, maybe they go into science communication. And we need scientists in these roles. Personally, I'd like to see more go into bit parliament and being policymakers, but, because I think that would make for better policy. Um, so I think women choose to leave because they just don't like the atmosphere they find it in. Arlene Leiser, who is the current um, head of uh, UKRI, the, the, the main grant funder in this country, 
um, once said in a debate she and I were participating in that men are frightened to get out and women are frightened to stay in. And I think that's interesting. She was implying that women have more choices because maybe they are more articulate, better at dealing with people. All these are stereotypes and one has to be very careful. But um, men may feel, I know this, I'm going to stick with it. Whereas women feel, well, I, I don't feel very comfortable in this. I could go and write about science or you know, do something different because I've got other skills. So I think there are many, many reasons. And um, to say it's just because they want a family is kind of facile. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure where I saw this, but I think it was a couple of years ago during COVID shutdown. Um, the, I read somewhere that this is impacting women more both with both men and women working at home. And especially in the field of in academic fields where men do not want to be disrupt, disrupted because they want to do their publications. It's the same with women, but it seemed like women are getting doing more of the chores and the rate of publication. If I remember vaguely, kind of dropped for women in some areas. So do you think that COVID maybe exposed this th these kind of issues that you're talking about a bit more? I think it did. It, the evidence is kind of patchy. Yeah. Um, and it seemed to be discipline specific in ways that you know, it didn't make a great deal of sense to me. And I think it was also, so So I've heard it said both that talking about children became much more acceptable because the men had to face the same problems too. So I've heard that argument that, that suddenly issues about childcare became everyone's issues, but also that women ended up doing more of the work. So it probably depends very much on the nature of your family and your circumstances and the age of your children and all kinds of things. But for everyone, I think it was incredibly disruptive. Um, if you, I mean, if you had children at home, I knew parents who, who you know, were finding it absolutely, uh, you know, just such hard work trying to cope with a job as well as um, homeschooling and all the rest of it. So. I think it's going to take a long time to play out to see what's really happened. And one of the things that troubles me is already people are kind of discounting the pandemic, if you like, which I think is really dangerous because for some people there will have been a year or two when their lives were totally upended, be it children, be it elder care, whatever, and um, or long COVID. And if we look five years down the line and people are applying for promotion, are you still going to be allowed to say, well, I, I lost a year and a half because I had long COVID? Um, I mean, at the moment, I, I am fairly certain. I mean, I'm not involved in the processes, but I'm fairly certain the university here has a, a box in which you can explain how COVID impacted on you, which I think is utterly reasonable. But for how long? Because it will that gap, that pressure, that stress will persist almost indefinitely yeah uh I'm, I'm just going to ask you a kind of a hypothetical question how do you envisage equity in science and how do you see it in the future say in the next five to ten years well those are two different questions um in five to ten years i hope we will continue to see progress and discussion i think it is very clear that young men now are far more aware of all these issues than was true even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, talking to sort of 25, 30-year-old young men, that it's clear they are very much more sensitised to these issues. Um, so I'm sure there will continue to be progress. 
but it's slow and all the extrapolations say it will be a hundred years before we reach equity kind of thing and i'm sometimes challenged well do you think we need 50 percent men and women in every subject and no i think i have no idea what the natural balance would be maybe men are more likely to like physics than women. I have no idea because given what we do to young children, we have no idea what is natural. And I get really frustrated with people who say to me, well, there are only 20% of girls doing physics at university. That must prove girls don't like physics. And I feel, no, it proves that before they got to that stage, some of them will have been turned off. But whether it should be 50-50, I don't know. So what does equity look like to me? It is that any child can do whatever they want and not be told, oh, you know, as a boy, do you really want to do languages or, or psychology, which is a subject which is very female-dominated at university? Or if you're a girl, do you really want to do engineering? That's not very usual uh, uh, you know these kind of uh, negative messages we just need to eradicate them uh that sort of reminded me of uh my childhood when I, I i'm originally from iran so i did my high school in iran and in iran in high school you need to choose a major generally speaking so there are basically four majors math science and that science is usually biology which makes you a doctor you become a doctor uh humanities and then uh vocational education so these are the four broad areas that you can choose in high school and that that sort of determines your future because i was very good in um, my secondary school my parents started calling me a doctor from an early age hoping i would become a doctor in high school i did science which was yeah physics math but more of biology and i wasn't really enjoying it but i was good at memorization anyway i couldn't get into university in those majors and i ended up doing literature uh, English literature. But anyway, I became a doctor, but not a medical practitioner, which they hoped for. <laughs> uh, but I but I could now, you know, read respect, I can see, well, I did it as, I mean, I, I kind of felt those stereotypes as a boy that you're a man, you're good, so you have to be a doctor. And I could, yes. I can see how it could also play against girls as well. Yes. Um, yeah, especially more I, traditional I mean, we societies. Are very, we are very sensitive to the adults around us, inevitably. Mm. And we want to please our families and all the rest of it. There are all kinds of things that happen. And I was talking to, um, I was doing a book signing last week, and this young woman came up to me and said, I have three English degrees. So I assume she got a BA, MA, and PhD. I didn't ask her. Um, And I'm totally miserable. I'm, I'm going to go back to university and train to be a doctor, but I'd always been deterred. You know the teachers that stopped me doing science. So you know it's it's alive and well this kind of um, steering, if you like. Mm. And, and if you end up being miserable, that's not a solution to anything. <laughs> yeah, in high school, I just I wasn't enjoying it. I just went into science because I couldn't say no to my parents. Yeah. It's not that they were super kind to me. I just felt that I owe it to them to become a doctor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Of course. And. Uh, and you know when in university in Iran you have to do an entrance exam to get into university and I think I passed to become a veterinarian but that was the last thing I would imagine for myself so I skipped it and the next year I just uh, did uh, did humanities and I passed the entrance yeah. exam and I did English uh, which I'm very happy about <laughs> yeah you found what you wanted to do yeah. not what your parents wanted exactly. you to do and, and you know parents mm. aren't meaning to be mean they 
They just right. have a vision for what, yeah. what would be good. Mm, that's right, yeah. Professor Donald, thank you very, very much for speaking uh, with us on New Books Network. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners uh, have enjoyed it as well. Thank you very much for having me, and I, I hope they'll read my book. <laughs>